Hi, everyone. Welcome to Foresight's Existential Hope Group. I'm really, really, really happy to see so many of you here behind the scenes uh, and then to have such a wonderful podcast guest here today. As usual, this is like a quite unusual podcast in the sense that um, Beatrice and I will be asking a few questions about what really drives the people that most inspire us uh, to be work on positive futures. And then we also have the back room of our existential hope group uh, that um, is uh, collaborating through the chat. And if we have time, we will take a few questions at the end. But for now, uh, we will kick it off. And I'm really, really happy to have Creon here today. Um, it's very, very difficult to describe you, Creon, and to introduce you as a person. I think in a previous foresight talk, I tried it by saying that whenever I face a difficult situation, I try to channel my inner Creon and then try to do whatever comes up. Uh, so I can't use that line anymore. Uh, so I have to find a different one. Uh, but, you know, I really want to say, like, first and foremost, and officially, really, you are like a super brilliant polymath is not other way to describe it. Uh, you're at home in space uh, in the sense that you're heading research uh, at Planet Labs uh, after a really wonderful um, career at NASA. And I should also say that as a foresight, Senior fellow, you chair our space technology group, which is a private Google group of researchers, entrepreneurs, and funders that are interested in driving long-term progress in space, um, perhaps in channels, um, perhaps finding channels that, and they could otherwise, um, that where, where they can talk about the types of ideas that they could not otherwise talk about. Um, and I should also say that that's not your only forte, your poly. Mathiness, whatever you want to describe this, really shines through in a, any of our technical tracks, which you join most of them of, uh, from longevity to molecular machines. Um, you're always, I think, there with like a really, I think, interested, inspiring comment. And plus, uh, you gave a wonderful talk yourself on immunology. So for those of you who are listening to this uh, on YouTube or to our podcast, check out Creon's immunology talk. It has some really, really wonderful slides in there and is much loved and uh, garnered you a big following. And finally, I should really say that beyond your wonderful and outspoken mind, you also have a really big heart and are a dear, dear friend to many people within Foresight, really. Um, and most importantly, I think when we listen to your ideas and when you share, um, like it's very difficult not to get extremely excited about the future. And so you're really a great incarnation of existential hope. So really, really happy to have you on for many, many reasons today. Um, but we will dive right into the questions uh, and maybe just bring those up to speed who may not already be familiar with your work. Wait, yep. wait, 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 Allison, before we dive in, I wanted to say one more thing about the space group, which is encouraging anyone in the audience here who's interested in the intersection of space uh, science and technology and policy and foresight to uh, ping you or, or Finan to get in, in on that group because we're welcome, welcome additional people. Wonderful. That's a great first plug. Um, and I think that's a good segue also into our first question, which is just in general, like what are you currently working on? And like pick people that may not immediately be familiar with your career or a space career in general up a little bit about like what got you started. Like you have such a fantastic history. And um, yeah, I think it would be wonderful for new people in the space to learn a little bit. Like how does one get started on such a career? What got you inspired? What well, you I, had a, I had a lot of great luck, but I think that is available to most people if they um, pay attention. Um or as Richard Miller said, you know, you have good luck and then you have to jump on it. Like when, when a lucky event happens, you have to like just push. And uh, so uh, uh, anyway, I studied math and computer science uh, school. And then I 
had this great lucky break where NASA came interviewing for jobs at my school. And I thought, well, I'm going to finish my graduate studies, but why not have a test interview with NASA? And I had this fantastic interview where I just knew all this stuff that they were looking for. So they offered me a job and I came to California and I just kind of fell in love with the, the Silicon Valley at the time. This was in the eighties. And, um, and I dropped out of grad school and came to work at NASA. And first I worked on, you know, computer stuff. And then later on, I got into, um, data visualization, which was also kind of coding. And then I got into computational physics uh, and really learned a lot more math and physics and started writing codes with some of the computational physicists at NASA, investigating um, fluid dynamics, flow systems for airplanes and rockets, what's going on, and the aerodynamics and combustion. And then that got me into molecular physics and quantum chemistry. And I did a lot of quantum chemistry simulations and then I eventually got into the classic space mission design. So trajectories and eventually communications and optics, power, and um, did work on like actual space missions at NASA and launch systems. And then um, some friends of mine at NASA started this company called Planet Labs in the garage, in their garage in Cupertino at this community house that we all lived in. And eventually I, I left NASA after 32 years and joined Planet Labs about two years after it started, where now I have this fancy title of chief technologist and director of R&D, but really what it means is I kind of try to see what might help us in the future technologically and come up with new ideas for new types of instruments and missions. And then uh, hardly anybody officially reports to me, but I sort of have this attitude that the whole company reports to me if I can convince them that my ideas are good, they will work on them. And they'll work on them not because, you know, I'm their manager, but because they actually are enthusiastic. So that's that's where I've been at for the last few years. And uh, it's been wonderful to work with my friends on projects that are meaningful. Yeah, aiming to that. Working with your friends on meaningful projects. I think uh, that's uh, it's it's a good sign, I think, when the line between like your organization and your friend group is like extremely blurry. <laughs> Um, all right. Wonderful. Um, you already tackled a few of these individual areas, I think. Um, and yeah, you know, you've definitely had like, you know, I think a really rich, um, you know, travel through all of them, but, uh, maybe to just bring someone new up to speed who may be entering the space space. Like if you could give a bird's eye view of what that space even looks like, like what does it entail to work in the space industry or how could one even think about, uh, that entire space? Well, the space industry is fairly broad these days and getting bigger. As you know, there's a lot of activity uh, that's geared up over the last 10 years, uh, particularly the last uh, five. And um, so there's like, I won't say there's room for everybody, but there's there's room for all sorts of people with different expertise from physics and math to uh, engineering, dis all the disciplines, electrical, mechanical, thermal, um, um, software, uh, as well as life sciences people and um Uh, economics people and business people. And in our case of our company, even salespeople, because we basically sell data. That's in our satellites produce image data of the world. And then we try and convince various customers that it's, it's worth their money. <laughs> and so, um, you know, one thing I will say about the space business is that a lot of people who wind up in it, possibly a significant majority, they're sort of like space enthusiasts. And so, They direct themselves into it and they figure out a way that they can contribute. It's almost kind of like a cult. Like, you know, 
people are like, space is the answer. And, and then they just go into this field because they are whatever passion science fiction or inspiration as, as young person, you know, there's a stars in their eyes. And, and so we get a lot of really devoted people. And, um, in general, that's a very good thing in practice. I tend to now in my later years be like, okay, let's, let's calm down here and be more reasonable and not just be like enthusiastic about space for its own sake. But, you know, I recognized, I recognized the power of the inspiration and the, um, and anyway, it's a, there's a lot of great people, really devoted, really wonderful, intelligent, hardworking, um, and interesting people in this business. And, and you can, and, and I mean, you can work for the government, you can work for private industry, you can work on your own startup. There's a lot of different uh, ways to get into the game. Okay, great. And, uh, what could someone like imagine the life of someone working in the space industry? Um, actually imagine to be like, I mean, like, you, you know, you've been at NASA and you're at Planet Labs now. Those are like very different roles. Now you haven't been at the government yet, I think. No, no, NASA's the government. I consider yeah. NASA the yeah. government. Okay. But so, like regul regulating the industry. Yet. No, no, it's not my thing. Um, so, um, I mean, an everyday life for me is kind of like normal, right? I, I, I kind of equally, uh, partition my time between studying and learning about relevant matters, doing like calculation and design and coding, mostly sort of small scale stuff to just test out ideas to the extent I can myself to see if they're any good. And then sort of the third partition of time is, you know, meetings, calls, pitching stuff to my colleagues to see if they make, make sense or reviewing stuff that they've done and telling them whether it seems to make sense. So, um, I mean, it's not that much different from any other sort of scientific or technical field in that regard. Is there any example project that, I mean, <laughs> it's not classified or something that uh, you could speak about? Like, that well, we, we don't really do anything classified at Planet. Um, so uh, we have, you know, proprietary stuff that, that we're not ready to reveal yet. But um, one example project that has been a great uh top of mind for me for several years now is this thing called Pelican, which we just announced, which is our next generation, very high resolution imaging satellites, which are sort of new kind of satellite, uh, mostly because it flies very low. And so it has an advanced propulsion system that allows it to fly kind of down into the atmosphere and get really close and take high resolution pictures with a relatively small, smallish satellite compared to And it's much less expensive than the competition that use larger satellites in higher orbits. And so that I've watched over the last few years that go from like my crazy idea and a few PowerPoint slides to this giant project now, which is like a major announcement of our company and we're spending a lot of money on it. We're building these things. They're getting the hardware's coming together. They're getting integrated. We booked launches for them. And so um, assuming it works, this is going to be a very exciting uh, year regarding that. Pelican project. And if you look on Planet's website, I think you could find some like yeah, marketing videos. Oh, very exciting. Um, okay, wonderful. Uh, in general, you know, if you look back not only at your own career, but like perhaps a little bit more back at like the field in general, and since you've been in it, um, have there been any exciting shifts or any like cultural paradigms or something that, you know, 
had returned, like, were there any, like, notable developments that, like, significantly, like, expanded people's just paradise of what's possible? Um, or, like, yeah, how, how did oh, the, how did the like space that. evolve? <laughs> very much so. In the, uh, let's say, in the last um, 10 years, or roughly speaking, maybe a little longer, uh, sort of the last few years I was at NASA and then the last seven or eight years I've been at Planet, um, there's been a huge change most people are aware of in the space industry we've had the rise of this whole so-called new space industry new companies building rockets and satellites and kind of using more trying to maybe discard where appropriate some of the ultra conservative approaches that government missions were for a long time pretty much the only game in town uh were levying these requirements on themselves that were maybe not quite compatible with a more um, uh, iterative, fast-paced, um, risk-tolerant uh, model like the typical Silicon Valley model. So there's been that whole new space industry, which I roughly described right there. And, um, and of course, another thing that has really made a change, you know, everywhere, but no less in aerospace and the space industry is that, you know, ridiculous advances in computer power and particularly for a given cost, like computers are a million times better than they were when I started my career for the same cost. It's, it's insane. Like my laptop was better than the best supercomputers. It cost tens of millions of dollars that we used to work with at NASA. My laptop of today is way better every way. And so, um, that's, you know, hugely changed what you can do in terms of managing data and doing simulations and testing designs. And then also, of course, you know, con concurrently with that, or we've had the rise of the internet, which has just completely changed knowledge management and access to information and now collaboration. Uh, so, so, I mean, this is not unique to the space industry, but it has had a huge effect on the space industry. Aren't there some videos online on YouTube as well of like, I think we're using the early NASA computers for visualizations and yeah, well, I encourage some people. of that stuff. Some of it's pretty embarrassing at this point in time, but it's probably findable. Well, at this point in time, but I think it only shows really how much progress actually occurred. Um, and so I think it's, yeah. it's quite inspiring. Um, okay. Well, are there like, you know, like, you know, coming from that historical lens, are there like any specific areas that, you know, you think are like maybe the next paradigm shift or areas that you currently find undervalued or where you just expect like if you, you know, even either cultural or technological breakthroughs to occur in your space? Well, I've, in the last few years, I've been getting interested in a broader set of topics than just space or remote sensing by satellite. They're somewhat related, but they're, I'm kind of more excited about some of these new synthesis areas. I mean, there's plenty of people who are focused on space and launch systems and satellites, and it's all wonderful. And I've been focused on it too, but, but more recently I'm getting really, um, inspired by natural systems and particularly the sort of, uh, merging of advanced technology with natural systems. I think that, um, particularly uh, with looking at biology and ecology and sort of looking for the wisdom of nature and combining that 
with with the technology that we have rather than sort of a technology versus nature approach or a technology replacing nature approach, which I often hear people talking about. I mean, as you know, like one of the things is, you know, people are concerned about carbon in the atmosphere. And so every tech bro or every tech bro has a, you know, giant machine that they want to build and scale globally to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And I'm like, hey, kid, you know, hey, guys, like we have the technology to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Nature's been doing it for, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of millions of years. It's, it's called the soil and it's called uh, life. And all we need to do is look at that and, and, um, and nurture it. And, you know, we can, we can sequester as much carbon as we want and also, you know, enhance biodiversity and, and really the natural systems are the miraculous ones. This is a similar thing, Alison, to what people see, like a lot of times in the nanotechnology and molecular machines field. It's like, oh, you want to get inspired about molecular machines? Look at life. Because that is molecular machines that are so much more complex, advanced, and beautiful than anything we we do, you know, with a scanning probe microscope. And not to not to to disrespect those who are taking a more hard engineering approach to it, but it's just that um, for me, uh, looking at nature and looking at life and looking at ecology is kind of the next frontier for technology because it is the ultimate technology, by far the most advanced technology we know of in the universe. Um, and then I would say that another thing that is really exciting me recently, and this is again, really not space, but it's just the idea that our outlook determines our future. And I know this is like, this is kind of the whole exo thing. It's like, if you spend all your time thinking about disasters and crises and dystopian futures, you're probably more likely to get one of those things than if you spend your time thinking about wonderful uh, aspects of the world and beauty and things that make you feel good and futures that, that, that are, uh, that attract you rather than repel you. So I'm very interested in how our frame of reference and our thoughts and feelings determine what we collectively create. And I just think it's time, especially for the fortunate people who, who, you know, participate in these kinds of calls and these kinds of social groups, very fortunate people, you know, should like stop being afraid and stop being, you know, uh, pessimistic and, and, and worry about doing doom and gloom. I'm not saying we bury our hearts in the sand and like ignore our problems. I'm just saying, let's focus on what we want. Um, so yeah, those are some things that really excite me and they're not particularly space technologies, uh, Yes, I think I, uh, I, as I said in the introduction, that's only like, I think really one of the many hats that uh, you wear, at least at Foresight. And we get to a few maybe others in the Q&A afterwards, but I also just want to point people to, there's a talk from Jonathan Barnes, who was a Foresight Fellow and gave a really wonderful talk at our Molecular Machines Conference a few years ago, entitled Artificial Molecular Machines. And he goes through nature and goes through nature and goes through nature and goes through nature. And, through nature. and then the tiny last bits are like, and this is what we can do. And so I think it's really, really inspiring really to uh, to take a look uh, and, and uh, yeah, just to yeah bear witness to all the fantastic things that nature can already do and learn from it. Um, okay. But you gave me too much of a good, uh, I think, segue into the existential hope theme. Uh, we cannot let that slide. And so I'm super happy to give it over to Beatrice now to really dig into the more existential hope section of this podcast. Yes. Thank you. 
Uh, and thank you, Kriam, for coming. Uh, yeah, so this section will just have a few questions that are more like digging into the philosophical aspect of what you just talked about and how our outlook determines our future. Um, and so, yeah, what we're trying to do is just hearing from scientists like Creon how what he's working on right now can actually impact the future and what visions, uh, you know, you're having for the future, Creon. And I know you and Allison have been friends for a long time, and I'm always hearing about like all the crazy, amazing things that Creon has done. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to hear if you have any crazy, amazing plans for the future as well. Um, well, there's this question that was, you know, we uh, shared the questions, but you might ask uh, in a document in advance, in just full transparency here. And look, look, there was this question about um, that it's hard for people to envision positive scenarios and envisioning dystopian scenarios seems to be easier. Um, uh, and I, I, and what can we do to change this? And so here's kind of what I have to say about that, which is that, um, again, we need to discuss what we want and what we want as individuals and what we want at a physical level and biological level and economically and societally and even cosmically. Like, what is it that we really, uh, desire and what inspires us in a positive way? Um, and we need to look inward at that stuff as well as outward. Now, I think dystopianism is easier. It's particularly easier to dramatize. Like everyone complains about dystopian sci-fi and dystopian movies. And it's it's easy to dramatize because one might say that drama requires conflict. And so if you're going to make a dramatic piece like a novel or a film, you want conflict. And human versus nature conflict is kind of passe. Like it's not considered a very... Uh, it's, it's not a really popular theme anymore. It used to be. Now we realize we have to partner with nature, at least intuitively. Um, and so uh, the, the conflict tends to be human versus human and good versus evil. And it's a formula. It's a simple formula for drama. But I think that actually, at least for me, like the best drama, even if it's kind of dystopian, like it, there is no good versus evil, black and white. Like you find that the characters have... All the characters have a mixture of each, and the hero has flaws, and the and the and the and the um and the uh, what's the thing that's not the hero, the villain? You know, if there is one, also has you know a point. So I think that that's really interesting, and that um and also I think dystopian is easier to visualize because people are programmed heavily since childhood to be afraid and be fearful, and they're ruled by fear. So many people, so much of the time, even me. Some of the time, less and less. Oh, and you know, and and like modern media and social media, they capitalize on this because like people have a visceral reaction based on fear, and so the the, the they're going to commercialize you know whatever grabs you. And if fear is what grabs you, then you're going to get more stuff that uh, that um, plays on the fear. Um, so, uh, uh. But I think we need to move beyond this. And it's, it's really hard. It's arguably a very hard thing for the individual to do and probably even harder for society. I think the American experiment, if you will, and the American dream of like, you can achieve what you want. And, you know, we can, we can have a pluralistic society where we, where we allow, you know, everyone to do their thing and it's going to collectively work out. I think this is a, a societal step in the right direction, but I think we really have to kind of get back to our roots in that regard and, and, uh, and stop being so angry and fearful and, uh, and just be a little bit more, um, 
open and tolerant and understanding and uh, positive and, and have, have compassion for the people who are still ruled by fear and try to gently encourage them to move in the other directions. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, and it's definitely, as you say, not, not being, uh, it's not black and white, it's not good and evil. Uh, and also, I, I mean, um, I was listening yesterday to a podcast where they were talking about how, uh, what, what you said about being positive, like hope, the definition of hope is having optimism with a plan. So it's being positive with a plan and also recognizing, you know, the challenges that will come along the way. Um, and yeah, so if we just try to actually start envisioning what a positive future could, could be like, do you have in your mind a vision of existential hope? Well, yeah, I mean, I have sort of, I have a rather extreme vision. People have even told me I should start a cult. <laughs> you know, semi-seriously. Um, and this is a vision that actually Alison also knows about because we both encountered the Millennial Project and Marshall Savage, who's kind of disappeared, but we encountered it together. And, and that vision is like, we might be the only intelligent life in the universe and this is not a, that is not a stance that is popular with a lot of my space friends, but quite frankly, you know, we have no evidence, uh, no direct evidence of any other intelligent life or any, even any other life at this point in the universe, but I'm willing to grant that microbial life or even just like simple non-technological, non-civilizational life might be uh, elsewhere in our galaxy. I think that the case is getting fairly tight right now that there's no high-tech, at least no high-tech expansionist civilization in our galaxy, perhaps other galaxies. And so if you think about this, and I'm not saying this is true, I'm just saying it's worth thinking about. If you think that we are the universe's only experiment with intelligent, conscious life that's capable of love and appreciating beauty and searching for truth, because the rest of nature doesn't really do that. Okay, the rest of life, as far as we know, doesn't do that. If we're the only ones that do that in the whole galaxy or the whole universe, then what happens to us is like of extreme vital importance. You can't take this nihilistic view that a lot of our contemporaries do. They're like, oh, the world is headed to hell in a handbasket, but you know, it doesn't really matter because there's a million technological civilizations. And so we're just a blip and who cares? I'm like, well, maybe not. Maybe we're the only game in town. It might be sort of a conservative precautionary view to at least consider that and say that what matters to us matters fundamentally to the future of the universe is the universe going to be filled with life and intelligence and beauty and love and 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 understanding or is it going to be you know a dead universe with just a bunch of like little bacteria living everywhere to me that makes all the difference in the world for the for the existential whole future so my sort of vision of existential hope is that we should at least take this as a serious possibility and realize that we we may have a absolutely fundamental responsibility humans to the future of the universe we either spread life through the universe and spread all these wonderful aspects of our uh, our culture and our ecology i mean it either it either expands with us to fill a dead universe or the universe remains dead so that is a distinct possibility. I think it is the precautionary principle to take it quite seriously until we have incontrovertible evidence that it is untrue. And I think it's actually a better 
a better vision. What I mean is it's a more positive vision because if we're just one little backwater third world civilization amongst the whole intergalactic federation, then it's like, well, you know, something we might end up faring about as well as other backwater third world civilization societies do on earth when they encounter the superior technology. It's like all kinds of things can go wrong, even if the even if the more advanced cultures, you know, have good intentions, it can still, it can still cause all sorts of problems for these uh, lesser players. And so I'm kind of hoping we're not a lesser player. And I'm thinking the evidence is that we might be the only player. And so let's at least talk about and think about that potential future where we not only matter, we are fundamental. Yeah, it sounds like sort of upgrading or upvaluing the humanity and the human experience yes. uh, and potentially being like even more afraid of existential risks than we already are for, for this planet. Well, again, but look, there's, there's a, like, yes, you can, you can make you even more afraid of existential risk because like everything hangs in the balance based on what happens to us in this, in this uh, uh, hypothesis. But it's also, you could look at it the other way. It's like the universe is ours, you know, like, what do we want it to be? Yeah, I I interpret you as being very like optimistic and positive about the future. Would you would you say that you are? And if so, what would you say has like given you that strength or power? Um, well, I'm I have a optimistic, positive vision of how it can be, and I think if we you know, it straighten out our attitude and certain other things, it will be that way. Um, and I'm kind of wired to be optimistic. I'm not a very depressed person, although you don't have my moments. Um, but, uh, and, and this wiring, by the way, this is kind of why I'm so obsessed with how individuals think and whether they're and how they feel and whether they're ruled by fear or ruled by, uh, vision. Oh, it, because really like it has to start there. It's not gonna, it's not gonna, we're not going to have this great future if everyone is, you know, depressed and and pessimistic and fearful so let's let's work on that uh, i mean i get again like you know there's questions about technology and breakthroughs and stuff like this i'm like well you know technological breakthroughs are probably going to still happen and i don't know which ones are going to happen when but i'm kind of you know thinking that as long as you know things don't go totally off the rails like we can count on technological advances and even some breakthroughs but if we don't have a breakthrough in our wisdom and our thinking and our vision, then the technology is neutral. Like it's just going to make, like, look at AI, you know, it could make the world this way or that way or, or make or no difference. You know, it's, it's up to us. It's not the technology. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's what I think the existential hope project is about in terms of, you know, um, envisioning the, the past, but also um, being aware of the risks. Um, I would like to mention one technology, and I, I, you know, I know that I kind of people hear this a lot from me, but just in case, I do think that a, an amazing thing that we we can use to make the world, the Earth, a much better place is regenerative agriculture and regenerative aquaculture. Those things can really solve a whole interlocking set of problems. Ecology, pollution, climate change, nutrition, 
human health, biodiversity, the oceans. It's a big topic and it's a topic for another day, but, but, but regenerative agriculture is, from my mind, the most interesting quote-unquote new technology that I've found out about recently. A lot of it is not very new. Some of it is, uh, but it's getting, it's getting really hot. And, um, and uh, you know, I've even done some projects with Foresight on this. It's really, really cool. I think it would be interesting to hear more um, more on it if you want to talk about it for a few minutes. And also, uh, any potential risks you see with it would be interesting to hear. Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, it's it, it, a few minutes is really um, not enough time. And But I will say the risks, I don't think there's risks in terms of like catastrophic risks that it's going to get out of control or something like that. It's a natural process and the earth has been sort of doing it in a way not agriculture but it's like this is just again looking at nature and, and finding out uh, what works really well and what we can use but um and the risks are more like risks that we're going to not risks that it's going to not happen <laughs> um yeah i prefer to schedule a separate regenerative agriculture session dive down that rabbit hole right now because our time is yeah that sounds fair enough um so i'll do a bit of a, a turn then and just ask you instead about um we're imagining someone you know young and new coming into the field that you're working in so the space field is there anything in particular that you would recommend that they read and it could be like a sci-fi or could be non-fiction uh or you know movies anything uh, that has really like inspired you on the trajectory that you are. I'm more, I mean, there's classic sci-fi and films and I have some lists I can post in the notes about this. I've made lists of what I think are the best sci-fi and best uh, sort of sci-fi films that tend to be on the more inspirational side or at least the deeper side rather than just like Star Wars and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I, I think that in terms of nonfiction, if you're really interested in space, um, um, Scott Manley's video podcasts are really good. They're hardcore space, but they're, I forget what the name of his podcast is. Um, but his name is Scott Manley and, um, he's done many, many, many on all sorts of things about rockets and space and all this. Um, I think that, uh, in terms of the general sort of technical and scientific ex hope oriented stuff, I really recommend Lex Friedman's podcast. Uh, I know it's a time investment, but um, but it's so good. He gets the best people, and he's doing really like the best interview here. And um, and then um, there's some others. I, sociologically, I really like Glenn Lowry. But that's a little bit more political. So yeah, those are some things I, I recommend. And you know, from those jumping off points, you can find all sorts of other things. I think those sounds like uh, yeah, great recommendations, and I would love to maybe be able to share your list of recommended sure. reading uh, sure I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send them right after the talk perfect um so last question that i wanted to ask was again imagining this young person wanting to uh, improve the world and getting into your field is there you know wanting to improve the future is there is there anything that you would recommend them specializing in is it regenerative agriculture or well, yeah i mean that's not really my field because i'm that's just sort of an interest of mine but there is a very interesting overlap 
between regenerative agriculture and satellites and remote sensing of the earth. And so I am currently trying to sort of pivot my, some of my work into that direction because I believe Planet Labs and other space activities, particularly remote sensing, can really be one of the many technologies that um, allows us to uh, operationalize and scale and sort of make this precise, beautiful blend of ancient wisdom and modern technology. So yeah, um, yeah, I tend you know, to bring everything back to regenerative ag these days, just because that's, that's, you know, kind of my, uh, one of my new passions. Um, uh, and you know, AI and internet of things and collaboration technologies, all this stuff is important, particularly for, uh, agriculture. It's a, a natural fit, all kinds of sensing, not just from space and all kinds of like smart devices, but again, not to replace nature, to leverage nature. Um, and, uh, you know, another thing I just thought of was that if I wanted to, if I was like a software person, like if you wanted to be a space person, you kind of have to study math and then you have to study physics and then you have to study some kind of engineering that's relevant, like aerospace engineering or electrical or mechanical. But, um, but if you're just like, you just love to code and have really interesting challenges in that regard, I'd go work for Twitter. <laughs> I think now is the golden opportunity. Like there's going to be some shifts at Twitter and it's going to become, it could become the worldwide collaboration platform, at least at a certain level for idea, you know, kind of free exchange of ideas. And, and, and I think that, you know, it can be so much more than what it is. And, um, that's a real, that's a real interesting possibility for a software person, but that's, I don't know what, I don't know about to just guess. Um, yeah, but if you just want to go the classic space route, it's kind of still a hard science thing. You study math, study physics, and you study engineering, and then you try and get a job in the space industry at the general default pathway. Or you can also come at it through coding. Yeah. I think um, just if, if I can um sneak in one more question is like i i was thinking you know we get we're getting a space person on the podcast that we would you would just be very talking about like venturing out there um is that something that you you think we should do or is it where are you on this well i've never had felt the call i've never even as a child when i knew i wanted to like work at nasa or fantasize about it i did not want to be an astronaut there are others who feel quite differently and kind of that's all they um, I don't know, maybe I was a little too afraid or I, I, uh, I'm not quite sure why I was never called. I wanted to be one of those guys on the ground working on these complex systems. And, and so that's what I did. Um, um, I'm sorry. What was the question again? Oh, I, the question I think was just if, if you think we should venture out, um, oh, absolutely. We should venture out. It's like, it's the hero's journey Yeah, it, to the extent that it exists in the modern world. I mean, it is, it is the hero's journey. And, and, and by the way, that's a whole other rabbit hole, but it's like when you, you know, we send robots into space to do science and we send, and we, to a lesser extent, send people sometimes to do science, but it's really not sending people into space to do science or to do technology development or, or even for military purposes. Like it's kind of BS. Like the money is, if you're just looking for the return on the dollars, like you can do a lot more science with robots. You can do a lot more uh, technology 
development on the earth for the same amount of money you can do. Oh, you know, military doesn't really care about people in space. They did for a while, but it's like the mission's just not worth it or it's even there at all. And so um, all these t- t- people that get up there and try to justify like humans into space because of the spinoffs and stuff like that, I think that's kind of, I think they're being disingenuous. They're in the humans in space field because they're inspired by it because of this exploratory drive and the hero's journey. They're not, and then they try and pretend like it's not a religious matter, but it's a, it's like an economic matter. And it just, it doesn't, I don't think it holds up to scrutiny, but, but, but I'm not trying to say don't do it. I'm just saying, you know, do it for the inspirational reasons. Uh, now, you know, on the other hand, like I did ask this, I went to these lectures once about the Mars rovers, the first set of, uh, advanced Mars rovers, the Mars Explorer rovers, which are, I think they're dead now, but they, they, they were up there for close to 10 years wandering around before the new ones got there. And, and this guy gave this great talk at NASA. It was the first I'd ever seen like this. He was a geologist and he gave a talk about the like first year of this rover's activities it went here and it took photographs of this. And then it saw this other thing in the distance and then it went over there and then it made some measurements and it drilled a hole and then it, you know, found this other thing along the way. And then it looked at that and he made this whole hour long discussion of this rover's journey. You know, I don't know how many, it was a few kilometers and all these different things they figured out about the geology of Mars. And, and, and I was, it was very impressive, right? Because this was all done, you know, for, you know, orders of magnitude, less money and time than it would take to send humans to Mars. And, but I did ask him at the end of the talk, I was like, well, you're a geologist. You just described a year's worth of activity of this remotely operated rover on the surface of Mars doing geologist things, because this was kind of like a robot geologist. And, and I said to him, if you were there on Mars with your, you know, your pickaxe and your magnifying glass and your collection uh, bag, like how long would it have taken you to do all this stuff that the rover took a year? And he said, oh, about 45 minutes. So, um, there is sort of, I, I'm not going to completely denigrate the idea of humans doing science uh, on other worlds, but um, it'll be a, it'll be a, it'll be wonderful, but I don't think it, it's a justifiable reason to spend the hundreds of billions of dollars to, to send people to these places. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. okay. Well, look, this is too much of a good opportunity for me to not just chime in with a few participant questions because we actually had someone ask, what would you advise Elon Musk to do to actually make a self-sufficient Mars colony? And while you're at it, if you do want to talk a little bit about uh, if O'Neill-style space colonies are likely and whether or not we can have Dyson swarms, please go for it. This is now a speculation zone out in space. Uh, I mean, this is not really my um, passion. Of course, I've paid attention to it for many years. I don't think I can advise Elon Musk about colonizing Mars. I think he's thought about it much more deeply and, you know, has obviously actually made it start to happen. So I really, you know, and, and, and by the way, all I could advise him to do was what he did at the very beginning. I would have been like, talk to Robert Zubrin because he's, he's like, he understands what it's going to take to get started. And, 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 and so that's exactly what Elon did. He met Zubrin. And I mean, he didn't hear this from me. I just found out later on that he had met Zubrin and he had become, that's how he got super enthusiastic about the Mars mission stuff was because he saw that there were actually architectures that closed, it, which is a technical aerospace term meeting. It, you know, they actually, you can design something that's capable of achieving the goal and uh, it comes in 
on budget and on schedule, you know, the right mass, all this kind of stuff. Um, um, so in terms of, um, O'Neill colonies and Dyson spheres, I'm one of these people, I'm not really into like the moon versus Mars versus space colonies. I'm kind of like, you know, do it all. if you can't like, not, not necessarily must, but it's like, I don't think we know necessarily which, what the optimal path is right now. So in a way, maybe it's just, we'll do the first one or maybe we can do multiples. I mean, all these things are possible and eventually they can certainly happen. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure how much people would, are actually going to like this. You know, you have to think about like, I mean, a colony on Mars or even, a, a an orbital colony, like a colony on Mars is going to make burning that look like a luxury accommodations, right? It's going to be hard. It's going to be isolated. It's going to be um, dangerous. It's going to be boring, um, hostile, you know, uh, but still there are some people who are drawn to that. I'm not, you know, people who go to Antarctica and stuff like that. That's what it's going to be like, um, but worse. Uh, and space colonies, it's going to be kind of like, I think, like living in a shopping mall or, or like an indoor uh, condo complex at, at best. So again, it's not for me, but I, I think it's great. And like Dyson spheres, stuff like that, that's like, that's far future stuff. And, and there, you know, you're talking about like, mega mega engineering so all things are possible dyson spheres with regenerative agriculture could be into that you know with herds of that's how they usually herds. look like right yeah, like, right right so i have high hopes um it's at least aspirational already and i should also say that for those of you who are interested in the space group now robert zubrin will actually join us i think he's next oh, or the speaker after yes. You actually discuss uh, mass colonies, so that would be exciting. Hey, uh, Allison, are you going to ask me these bonus questions? I will. I will. I'm getting to it. Creon. Creon is interviewing himself. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, and you're actually doing a great job at this, uh, which I think is so nice to also see in our space group. I really, really, really appreciate that. Um, uh, especially, I think, for those of you watching, like the interview between you and uh, Adam Brown is a really, really fantastic one. It's really wonderful. And uh, yeah, anyway, I'm I, I'm I'm getting off track again. Um, okay, great. he's such a great uh, such a great person. I love that guy. That is correct. We also had him for our existential podcast on I think two podcasts ago, and so that one will be out shortly as well. Okay, but you're bringing me back on track here. Um, thanks for that. We are trying to make this podcast really actionable in the sense that, you know, we're A, trying to really inspire and uplift people and then B, also give them like at least a, um, an avenue in which to channel their creative energies into. Um, and so first, maybe we get back to the concept of a catastrophe. So when, you know, the paper on existential hope from Toby Ord and Owen Cotton Barron first came out, you know, they really coined this term or like they, they resurfaced the term of a catastrophe, which was actually talking. But it was interesting because they were trying to come up with a term that is not a catastrophe, but like the opposite of a negative catastrophe. Like in a moment after which the expected value of the universe or after which the future just looks much, much brighter. And so we want to come better term for this. Um, and we have a bounty out for this as well. For those of you who are listening, Creon, what's your best shot? What's a better word for you catastrophe, which sounds so much like catastrophe? Oh uh, yeah. So I wrote a few things down here. I don't know if the good ones sound. I'm not really that great at that 
the taglines. I think the future we want. I mean, if the U, okay, if the U catastrophe is the pivotal event, then I think a pivot is almost what we're talking about here in the language that I speak in terms of human uh, growth. Um, a pivot to the future we want. I don't know. Is there an opposite to the word apocalypse? Like, is there a pro pro copy? Yes, I looked it up. Creation, genesis, and origination. Yeah. Okay. But if we're looking like for the transition, yeah, I don't know, a pivot to the cosmic, a pivot to the cosmic endowment or a pivot to a flourishing universe. Or if we have an opposite, a single word that's the opposite of apocalypse, that would be a good word to come up with. That's all I got. Okay. And we have a great participant comment as well here from Joy on Fantastrophe. So Joy, please. Fantastrophe. Oh, I love that. That's, I, that's great. Well, we have a Gitcoin bounty out there right now. I think with many submissions already, I'm just finding a better term for this. So, um, Joy, please uh, apply to this and anyone else who's hearing this, uh, if this out by the time that this is airing. Okay. Good. We'll continue to moan and, 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 and yeah, just time out this a bit. And second question that we always ask, uh, which is, I think, the one that like really is my favorite question. So I'm always so excited to ask it, um, which is, what would be such a new catastrophic event for you? And so the idea is really... Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, like, but wait, let me just set the stage for those um, people that are uh, that are listening in. And so the idea is that, hey, look, let's try to actually imagine what such a great event would look like, the opposite of a catastrophe, like after an event after which the value of the universe would be much larger. The reason why we're asking is that we will then use that as a prompt and again with a bounty so that other people can generate a day in a life story about this. And we'll also create an art piece that really visualizes this type of event um, and that we will then exhibit in our extension home gallery. So the stage is yours, Creon. Give us your best shot at a YouTube well, okay. moment. This was, this was a question that I really felt a little bit of um, ill-prepared for, but I, I do have uh, some ideas. So I, I think one very interesting thing is that several of, like you and I, Allison, Beatrice, and maybe some others in this call, who've, who've we have had some experiences over the last few years that are really, I feel, sort of uh, examples, like community uh, gatherings and stuff like that, that are examples of what everybody could actually have in a, in a fantastic future. And so I think that to some extent, maybe this is my own filter bubble here, but to some extent, things are already pivoting towards the kinds of future we could have in terms of love and community and technology and, and, you know, adventure, but also like lack of severe hardship and lack of fear. So I think that, I think that to some extent our community, and maybe even to some extent, it's less obvious the world is pivoting in this direction. You know, I'm sort of a Steven Pinker fan and I think that things are, are getting better. And while we have risks, um, things are getting better for most people in spite of what a lot of our contemporaries, you know, are, 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 are so concerned with and i'm not to say their concerns are invalid i'm just saying it's a matter of where you focus you know what you want or what you you love or what you hate but um but uh um you know like look at this recent war in ukraine yes of course there's been suffering and of course there's danger but it's kind of making a point like hey this is a terrible idea to go invading another country like these days it does not work out well uh you know one could so I think this is the, these are they are hopeful signs that the planet may actually be saying, "Hey, you know, we have it pretty good." Like, 
leave us alone or, or just like collaborate with us, but don't fight because, because the aggressor, uh, what's in it for them, really? It's not clear that anything is. Um, and so, so again, you know, uh, I'm happy with what I'm seeing, but maybe I would see the world through rose colored glasses, but that, those are the glasses I want to see it through. So let's just leave it at that. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, to concretize it a little bit and actually like make it something that, you know, people can really like imagine and pinpoint like a storyline on or like, you know, uh, even like an art piece for, I'm hearing a lot, um, of like, you know, I guess at least in the beginning of it, like community and, uh, like types of specific like gatherings really in community that, um, make one see that like more is possible and, you know, why even we want longer lives for ourselves and for civilization. Like those kind of like, you know, pivotal breakthrough community moments. Is is that something like that? Or is there like a, a different threat you want to pull on? No, I think I think that's more your thread, Allison, and I'm totally behind it and I love it. It's just that's you know my way of thinking is more like you know, and maybe this is just like fantasy land. I don't know. I don't think so. My way of thinking is more like peep yes, people People have to fall in love with their lives and in love with their fellow humans and in love with their civilization and the future. And, you know, on the one hand, some might say, oh, well, you're proposing a change in human nature and that's, that has never happened and it's never going to happen. But I'm not so sure. I think humans are changing globally, you know, not everywhere, not all at once and not uniformly, but in a positive direction. But, but I think, uh, you know, we are like all these things that used to be so commonplace, like slavery and and, and, and brutal hand-to-hand combat and warfare, that the, these things are all, you know, anomalies now, and they're on the way out. I think so. So yeah, I think that that a pivot of humanity, based on a pivot at the individual level, is um is the event that's necessary and sufficient to make this happen. Quite frankly. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I think it's not even like all that rosy to the extent that, and like this is, I guess, also a plug for the book on gaming the future technologies for intelligent volunteer cooperation that like Mark and Christine and I just wrote. But like, I think really like we've made it so far as a civilization. And what you mentioned up front of just like, you know, we've made it far enough that aggression is really not like such a good strategy anymore right now, right? Like you can either have like voluntary independence and leave each other alone, right. um, or you can cooperate and collaborate. Um, or you can, or you can compete within sort of a lawful, orderly playing field, and even that is becoming more like interdependence and this kind of thing. So, so we've been learning a lot the last few years, and I think we're going to continue to learn at a rapid rate. And I'm, I, I think, you know, again, for all of its, uh, uh, for all the malignment that it gets, including from me, media and social media make it clear to the world or much of the world that like. Uh, certain formally unquestioned ideas about uh, war and and these sorts of things are are uh, deserve reexamination and rethinking, and it's happening. Um, hey, so I have my my you the last thing on the list, right? Was yeah. the, the the advice question. Yes, Creon, would you like to well? First, I want to say, I think, like, just to the competition point, I think one thing that we had also observed in the book is that competition often is just competing and collaborating or cooperating better with others. And so to some extent, we're competing on cooperation terms often, right? 
that is often what we're doing. And it's if we get better at operating, that's a pretty good driver, I think. Um, yep. That yep. just to table the cooperation discussion. But uh, that's, I think, will make for a few wonderful problems. So now, two more minutes. What is the best advice you ever got? Um, okay. How can others benefit from it? I got four pieces of advice that stick out in my mind. I've gotten much, but I'm going to just mention them. Uh, when I was a kid, I was fortunate enough to be tutored by this famous astronomer named Bart Bach. And his advice to me as a young student was first study mathematics, then study physics, and then study astronomy, because I was interested in astronomy. So I didn't exactly go into astronomy, but but that's kind of what I did. So thank you, late Bart Bach. Um, then the next piece of advice is from the spiritual teacher named Abraham Hicks. Carefully look into how you feel inside when considering various plans, events, and actions. Then pursue what makes you feel good. So you look how you feel, and if something makes you feel good, you move towards doing that, or you move towards appreciating that. And if it makes you not feel good, you recognize that it's not the direction you want to go, and you try to move your mind and heart in, in directions that do make you feel good. Uh, so that's really important. Um, then uh, Sadhguru, who I've been listening to recently, had this thing that said, um, you know, he was talking about like how to think and how to navigate the world. And he said, and he's this Indian guru, right? And he said, uh, I'm not teaching you a religion. I'm not teaching you a philosophy. I'm teaching you a technology, a technology about how to be the CEO of your own mind. And so this is, this is sort of another version of the same thing. Um, and then the last piece of advice that I'm really glad I got was when I ran into my friend Luke Davis a number of years ago, I don't know, six to seven years ago. And he said to me, Creon, you have to come to this event tonight and meet my friend Allison. You will love each other. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. <laughs> my dog, very, very emulatable. <laughs> thanks, Creon. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining. This was really, really wonderful. We hit it right on the hour. And um, yeah, I think Christine said in the chat, we have to do these more with you than just uh, once. So you have to come back annually now. And there's okay. always like lots to learn. All right, everyone, this was a really, really hopeful session. I always leave like, I think, I think I would say is my Yucatastrophe free moment is having conversations like this uh, and having like podcasts like this. Like, uh, even if they're virtual or at Vision Weekend, like I always leave like insanely inspired afterwards. So thanks a lot for this Yucatastrophic moment, guys. And, um, yeah, we can't wait for the next one. Those are monthly. Thank you, Creole. This was wonderful. Uh, yep. thanks for having so much. And, uh, I hope you all have a lovely rest of your day and weekend. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.